Good morning. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to the book of Philippians. You know how you guys always say that you like it better when I preach when I lose my voice? Good news. It's gone. What I lack in vocal vitality, I will try to make up with uh, hawking and snorting and coughing. In 1929, Joseph Stalin banned the celebration of Christmas in Russia. But then he did something strange in 1935. He created a new holiday for the Russian people, a Christless Christmas. Instead of celebrating the birth of Christ, the Russian citizens would celebrate uh, the new year. And this would be a time of Not the coming of the Son of God and the revolution of God's love on the earth. It would be a time to celebrate the progress of the communist people's revolution in Russia. Gifts would be given in this new holiday, but they would not be given on Christmas Day. Rather, they would be given on New Year's Day. Instead of having a Santa Claus, there would be a Grandfather Frost. Grandfather Frost would have a Long white beard, he would ride in a sleigh, not pulled by reindeer, of course, but by three horses. And then they would give gifts to children, probably borscht. Instead of worshiping the baby Jesus, there would be a New Year's boy. And instead of a Christmas tree, there would be a New Year's tree with, of course, a shiny red star on top. This new Christless Christmas was due in large part to Stalin's daughter Svetlana. In 1935, the British ambassador to the Soviet Union held a Christmas party at the British Embassy, and he kindly invited Stalin and his family to attend. Uh, Stalin obviously could not go. It would be bad optics for him to be seen cohorting with the enemies, and so he sent his daughter Svetlana in his place. After hearing about how much fun his daughter had at the Christmas party, Stalin realized that there was no real reason to deprive the Russian people of the joy of Christmas and the holiday spirit. So he invented and rolled out his own Christless version of Christmas. This morning's sermon is not about communists in the Arctic. It's about grumblers in the desert. In the same way that Christmas without the Jesus story lacks any true significance, the concept of grumbling without the context of the Exodus story lacks true significance. So just stop and think about it. When you hear the word grumble, what comes to mind? Right? For most of us, when we hear that word, we think of maybe like a crotchety old grandpa you know, who's never happy with anything. Maybe you think about like a a picky eater, someone in the church or in the workplace who's always complaining about their preferences. But the word grumble is actually much more serious than all of that. It's, It's a very spiritually loaded term. So in order to help you see that, let me just read a couple of verses to you. Let's start in 
in the epistle of James, James chapter 5, verse 9 says this. Do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Jude is even more intense. Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly manner and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers. To grumble is not merely to mumble petty complaints under your breath. God does not bring 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment against people who are overly fussy. To grumble is a sin that always brings about God's holy and fierce wrath. What you're going to see in this morning's sermon is that to grumble is to fear our circumstances and our future and our enemies more than God. To grumble is to despise and to disbelieve God. To grumble is to love our comfort more than we love our God. Grumbling is not only a hindrance to our own personal joy, but it is also something that will kill our evangelism right where it stands. So let me read the text and pray, and then we'll jump into it together. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word, and it is completely sufficient for all things needed for life and godliness. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Lord, help me. Not just physically, Lord, with your spirit, help me. Your word is so big and so weighty and so true, it feels like I can barely get my arms around it every week. Lord, you know our people and the needs in our lives. Lord, would you minister to us this morning? Would you convict us of our sin? Would you grow us in holiness? Would you increase our joy? Would you strengthen us in our evangelism? And would you help us to glorify you by increasing our faith and our love for you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in the introduction, I said that, <coughs> excuse me, you can't really understand the word grumble unless you understand the story 
of the Exodus. So I want us to walk through that together briefly now. So let's just do a couple of bullet points, okay? You remember, of course, that the Lord created and he saved a people for himself called Israel. In time, as the people of Israel carried on through the story of salvation, they were enslaved in Egypt where they suffered great and terrible injustice under the hand of the Egyptians. Israel cried out to God in light of their oppression and suffering, and God heard their cry, and he remembered his covenant, and he sent a redeemer whose name was? There we go. All right, we got to do some, some work here. The Lord sent Moses and Aaron to rescue Israel from Egypt, and so they did. And this story is really powerful. It's the story of plagues and magicians and blood and water and drama and intrigue. And when all of it's said and done, the people of Israel make their way through the sea. They're freed from their bondage in Egypt. And they begin their journey through the desert to the promised land. But as we read in our scripture reading this morning, it took them 40 years to get to the promised land. Why? Well, because they grumbled. Because of their grumbling. And their grumbling begins shortly after their salvation in Exodus 15. Right after they pass through the Red Sea. Exodus chapter 15 verse 24 says, And the people grumbled against Moses saying, What shall we drink? Concerns over water soon turned into concerns and complaints about food. On the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. Do you see that time frame? The 15th day of the second month. That's how long it took their hearts to turn against God and his grace. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. You know, the Israelites were hungry. And in their hunger, they forgot about every other terrible thing that they suffered in Egypt. They had selective memory, right? Like someone who gets out of like a really toxic relationship, they only remember like the one good thing, right? You ever had to try to talk your friend out of going back to that person? Oh, but they were, no, are you forgetting about like every other bad thing about them, right? They failed to remember their oppression, but they could remember the food. They had bread, they had meat. And so the Lord and his tremendous mercy gives the people of Israel the bread of heaven and evening meat. In Exodus 16, we read this. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against himself. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. 
The people of Israel were not satisfied for long after they received this miraculous provision from God. And so in Exodus 17, we read this. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock? Later, as the people of Israel approach the land of Canaan, they begin to grumble again. And this may be the most significant passage we read this morning, so just lock in with me. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? This is astounding. Sometimes we do this when we get saved. Shouldn't I just go back to the world? Following you, Lord, is so difficult. You didn't tell me it was going to be this hard, even though he did, or you should have been paying attention. And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel, and Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes. And they said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. So here we see quite clearly that this grumbling is rebellion. Then... You see in the next line, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. So now we are starting to get to the heart of the grumbling. There's fear there. People aren't trusting in the God who rescued them, the God who sent them a redeemer, the God who performed signs and wonders, the one, the God who led them through the sea and destroyed Pharaoh and his armies. Just like that. They've forgotten who he is and what he can do and what he's already done and what he's promised to do and they fear people and they fear the future and they fear their circumstances more than they trust their God. Verse 10 says, Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. These are the leaders of God's people, the ones who led you out of slavery. They're standing before you saying, Hey, don't be afraid. Just like God saved us before, he's going to save us again. Just don't be afraid. And everyone's response is, let's kill him. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? You see what I mean now about grumbling? It's not a light, trifling, quirky little sin. To grumble is to despise God. And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? To grumble is to demonstrate the fact that you don't 
trust God. And so in light of this rebellion, the Lord renders judgment on Israel. He tells them not to go into the promised land because if they do, they'll be defeated. And uh, guess what? They didn't listen. I don't know why, but they decide to go and fight anyways. You know, it's just that contrarian spirit. God says, go into the land. They go, no, we can't. We're afraid. God says, okay, don't go into the land. They're like, we're going, and you can't stop us. They were struck down, and they were killed. They were prey to their enemies. And soon after this, the Lord began to instruct Moses on how Israel was to worship Yahweh and how they were to live in the land. But by this time, the grumblers were fed up. So a man named Korah took a coalition of 250 chieftains in Israel and led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. They grumbled against them and their leadership, according to Numbers chapter 16. And so the Lord, in response, opened up the earth and rained down fire from heaven. Now you would think that opening up the earth swallowing up these enemies of God, sending fire down from heaven would be a sufficient witness to all those who survived this judgment of the Lord. But it wasn't sufficient. The day after Korah's rebellion, all of Israel, everyone who was left, everyone who didn't get swallowed up by the earth or burned alive from the fire in heaven, they joined together in another rebellion against Moses and Aaron. In number 16, we read this. On the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. Moses and Aaron were like, guys, listen, just stop sinning and trust the Lord, and we're going to be okay. And they were like, no, we're going to sin, and we're not going to trust the Lord. The Lord disciplined them, and now they're mad at Moses and Aaron like it's their fault. So in response to this, the Lord sent another sign. He sent a plague, killing 14,700 of the people. And soon after the plague, the Lord took the staff of Aaron and placed it in the tent of meeting as a testimony against all the grumblers and rebels. Has my mic gone out? Can you guys hear me? The mic has gone out? You can't hear me? Okay. In the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord referred to these grumbling Israelites as a crooked and twisted generation. That's the language that Paul uses in this morning's text. A crooked and twisted generation. So now that we see what the word grumble means from the context of the Exodus story, we understand that to grumble is not merely to complain Rather, it is to rebel both against God and his chosen leaders. It is to fear man more than to fear God. It is, according to Numbers 14, to despise God and to reject his grace. To grumble is to look back on your time in slavery and to choose the comfort of familiar chains over the discomfort and suffering that accompanies God's covenant love. Now, what does any of this have to do with the Philippians? Well, you'll remember, of course, that Paul is preparing for his potential end, 
right? He's, he's trying to prepare the church at Philippi for the end of his ministry. So he writes his beloved Philippians and tells them that they must not grumble as the Lord leads them on their own wilderness journey. And so Paul, echoing Moses, says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So with all of that background uh, that we have now, I want to give you the sort of thesis statement of the sermon, and then I'm going to unpack it for you in three points for the rest of our time together, three quick points. Here's your thesis statement, note takers. If we hold fast to God's word, we will be full of joy and shine like lights in the darkness. We got it up there, guys? Okay. If we hold fast to God's word, we will be full of joy and shine like lights in the darkness. Point number one, hold fast. In verse 16, Paul says that we must hold fast to the word of life. What does that mean to hold fast? Right? We don't really speak like that. Typically, these days when we talk about holding on to something, we talk about, we would say like hold tightly, right? But the idea is the same. So, for example, in Genesis 2, we're instructed on the nature of marriage with these words. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. But it means more than to just hold on tightly. To hold fast means to cling desperately, right? So you might say if you're holding fast to something that you are hanging on for dear life. We find this illustrated all throughout the Bible. So consider, for example, the book of Job. Job says, I hold fast to my righteousness and I will not let it go. Right? Remember Job's context He's surrounded by people who are accusing him of unrighteousness. And he's lost his family, he's lost his health, he's lost his wealth, he's lost everything. So he clings desperately to the last thing he has, which is his testimony. I am an upright man before the Lord. Right? Four times in the book of Deuteronomy, the people of Israel are told to hold fast to the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 13, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. Why should Israel hold fast to Yahweh? Because if they don't, they'll die. In the same way as the people of Israel prepare to go into the promised land, Joshua reminds the people to hold fast to the Lord and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul. In Proverbs 4, the son is trained by his father with these words, Let your heart hold fast to my words, keep my commandments, and live. What the father is saying to the son is, if you don't listen to what I'm telling you, 
You're going to die. It's going to go badly for you in this life. So again, to hold fast in Scripture is to hold on to something like your life depends on it because it does. So Paul takes this Old Testament metaphor and he applies it to believers like this in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. You see the language Paul is using there? You will be saved if you hold fast to the gospel. Now with all that in mind, verse 16, Paul says, hold fast to the word of life. Why? Paul wants the Philippians to know that their perseverance, their ability to endure the trials and tribulation of their own wilderness experience is wholly dependent on their holding fast to God through his word. And so I want you to know the same thing this morning, brothers and sisters. The only way we will hold fast to God as if we hold fast to his word. The only way we will make it through our own wilderness experience is if we cling to God's word. When I'm talking about holding on to it, I don't mean like this. I mean like this. White knuckled. If I let go of this, I'm going to die. So I can't let go. It's not just my life that's at stake, it's my eternity. That's what it means to hold fast. Brothers and sisters, we are all, every one of us, holding fast to some word. The question is, which word are we holding fast to? You know, if there is a word of life, as Paul says that there is in verse 16, then I think it makes sense that there is a word of death. And Scripture speaks to a word of death often, right? Paul says, be careful who you listen to. We find this at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, right? The fall of man is precipitated by Adam and Eve choosing to hold fast to the wrong word. Paul warns his beloved churches, be careful. Someone is going to come and bring you a different word. And if you hold fast to that word, you will die. You can just turn on TBN, right? And you can see 10,000 different words. You can just go out into our city this morning and you can see that there are a bunch of different words being preached ostensibly under the title of Christianity. But they are not all the one true gospel delivered to the saints. We must be careful which word we are clinging to because if not, we will die. So let me just give you some examples. If, if you are trying to be found pure and blameless on the last day by holding fast to the word of your denominational tradition, you're not going to make it because the word of your denomination is not the word of life. Now, praise God, there are a lot of really healthy denominations out there that are staying very faithful to the scriptures. But you see the distinction there? We hold fast to what they say is true of scripture, not to them. Same thing is true as I stand here in this pulpit. I'm not getting it all right. I strive to make sure that that's the case. I pray. I have help and accountability. But at the end of the day, you can't hold fast to my word. You see, I'm a sinner like you. 
I'm at my absolute best when my words are just sort of not here at all and God's word is just coming through most clearly. You will not make it to the last day if you're trying to hold on to the word of your own good works. If you're trying to cling on to the word of some sort of Christianity that doesn't require you to suffer, to give up your time, talent, and treasure, to put your idols to death. There are a lot of counterfeit word of gods out there. We must be on guard. Okay, so now that we understand what it means to hold fast to God's word, let's dig a little deeper. Let's talk about point number two, to be full of joy. In verse 17 and 18, we see that the contrast to grumbling and disputing is rejoicing. Look there. Paul says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Point number two, full of joy. We've covered this several times in the book of Philippians, but I guess God really wants us to hear this message because it's just in the text again. So we'll say, thank you, Lord, and we'll take our medicine. So here we are again answering the same question, how can we rejoice in the midst of suffering? That's really the issue, right? That, that's what the Israelites failed to do. The Lord rescued them from their bondage, from their chains. He took them on a journey to the promised land. The journey was fraught with suffering. And rather than rejoicing in the Lord in the midst of their suffering, they grumbled. That's the context of the book of Philippians, you'll remember, right? Paul has been suffering. He has been enduring all kinds of trials and tribulations for the sake of the gospel. He's in chains. He's about to lose his life. And Paul says, listen, I'm trying to show you what it looks like to go through the wilderness without grumbling. I'm rejoicing in these trials. I'm rejoicing. I'm glad in the desert. One of the reasons why Paul can rejoice is because he says there in verse 17 that he sees himself as a drink offering. A drink offering was an offering in the Old Testament that was usually meant to accompany other offerings. So you had your animal sacrifices, you had your grain sacrifices, and then you would have your drink offerings, which you would pour on top of those as well. And so these these drink offerings, ultimately they were pointing forward to Jesus and the blood that he spilt on the altar of God for our sins. So think about that when you hear these words from Luke 22. Jesus says, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood, right? Jesus says, my blood is the drink offering that's being poured out on my body, which is given as a sacrifice to the Lord. But notice the language Jesus uses there. He says, this blood is spilled for you. That's the purpose of the offering. The offering is is to bring God's people to himself. It's for the sake of the elect. Now, Paul understood this. 
Paul knew that Jesus' suffering was not for nothing. It was for God's people, which helped Paul to understand his own suffering, right? Paul's purpose in ministry is to fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And so as he goes out taking the gospel, as he goes out suffering in his flesh for the sake of God's elect, he says, if the spilling of Christ's blood was a drink offering poured out for the people of God, then the spilling of my blood is a drink offering poured out for the people of God as well. You know, there's something weird about the way modern Christians talk about our suffering in relation to Christ. Much of the way that we talk about our suffering in relation to Christ is that is that Christ comes down and relates to us in our suffering. And that's true. The doctrine of the incarnation says that God came down to be with man in the flesh. He suffered what we suffered. He's a sympathetic high priest. But in the early church, particularly as people were like getting their heads cut off and thrown to the beasts and like dying for their faith, the, the main emphasis was less on Christ identifying with us in our suffering, and it was more on us identifying with Christ in his suffering. You see that in this morning's text. Paul is not rejoicing at the thought that Christ is near to him in his suffering, although that is true, and he would rejoice in that, but that's not what he's saying here. He's saying, I'm glad that I get to share in the sufferings of Jesus. And that is a distinction with a big difference. Paul says, I feel honored that I get to suffer in the same way that my master suffered. I'm thrilled that I get to pour out my blood as a drink offering for the faith of the saints. This is the purpose of my ministry and I'm fulfilling it in my suffering." So the application here is pretty simple, brothers and sisters. We should have this mind among ourselves. Whenever we suffer for the faith of our fellow believers, let's remember, let, let's, let's stop being so me-centered, right? Does anybody see me and my suffering? Jesus, are, he, are you here with me and my suffering? Of course he is. Let's change our mindset and rejoice in the fact that every single time we suffer for the gospel, it's a privilege that Jesus has let us partake in. He didn't have to do this. He didn't have to invite us into the story. He didn't, let us have to, he didn't have to let us imitate him. Every time we suffer, we are a picture of the gospel to a lost and dying world. We are imaging his suffering you know, the people in your life today, they weren't there 2,000 years, 2000 years ago at Golgotha. They didn't see Jesus hanging from the cross. They didn't hear his words when he cried out, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? They didn't see his lifeless body hanging on the cross. They're not going to be able to see that. We can't go back in time. So how will they see his suffering on their behalf? How will they see that love and the shedding of his blood? How will they see the drink offering of his blood poured out for them? They'll see it in you. Shouldn't we be glad? Shouldn't that lead us to rejoice? Shouldn't that put to death our pity parties? 
So brothers and sisters, let's rejoice in this privilege of suffering as we give our time, our talent, our treasure, our energy for the faith of God's elect. Let's protect our hearts against the spirit of grumbling and learn to see our sacrifices through the eyes of faith. Friends, we would do well to remember that Jesus rejoiced. And what he suffered is infinitely worse than anything we will ever suffer. Jesus did not grumble at the Father's will for his life as he passed through the wilderness. And you know, the wilderness that he passed through, it wasn't just like, hey, I'm thirsty and some bread would be nice. The wilderness that Jesus passed through was the wilderness of death. And not just physical death, but spiritual death. The wilderness of Christ was the wilderness of God's eternal wrath. And yet he did not grumble. He believed God. He saw the joy that was set before him and he went towards it, even through the deepest possible pain. And this is why the prophet Isaiah said this about Jesus centuries before his sacrifice. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Whenever you think about Israel, you should always make a beeline to Jesus, right? In every single way that Israel failed, Jesus, the true and better Israel, succeeded. Israel grumbled in the desert. But Jesus trusted his Father and rejoiced even through the deepest possible pain. And so did Paul. And so can we. Point number three. Lights in the darkness. The Israelites, Paul, Jesus, the Philippians, all of the martyrs throughout church history, they were all faced with a choice. They could choose in the midst of their trials and tribulations to trust God, to hold fast to his word, to rejoice, or they could grumble. We are faced with the same choice. In every trial and circumstance, In every instance of suffering, as we journey through this wilderness on our way to the promised land, we can choose to rejoice or to grumble. And whatever choice we make, it will bear some form of witness to a lost and dying world. So, when we choose to grumble in the midst of our suffering, we tell the world that God is not dependable We tell the world that his promises are not enough. We tell the world that his covenant love cannot sustain us. Friends, there is no greater counter witness to the gospel than a group of grumbling Christians. Oh, what a terrible anti-witness to the gospel. And guys, listen, don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? I'm not saying Christians can't be sad. The book of Psalms is in the Bible for a reason, right? Just being really honest with the Lord and our pain and our, our suffering. 
But there's a big difference between lamenting and running to God with your pain, seeking help from Him in your time of weakness, and grumbling against God. Now, if we choose the better path, the path of Christ, the path of Paul, when we choose not to be like our father Adam, but to be like our father Jesus, when we find some way, even through the deepest possible pain, to rejoice in the wilderness, when we identify with Christ in our sufferings, when we refuse to join in with the crooked and twisted generation, we will shine like lights. That's what our morning's text tells us, right? Look at verse 15. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Friends, my encouragement for you as you go back out into the world this week is to be happy Christians, to be joyful Christians, to be glad Christians. Think about the world that you're about to go back into. Everyone is angry about everything all the time. Everyone is put upon. Everyone feels victimized. Everyone is grumbling. And you go out there and you experience the same brokenness of this fallen world. You experience the same pain, the same tragedies, the same suffering, the same sin. And somehow, some way, you find it in you by God's grace to be glad and to rejoice. Oh, what a what a testimony that is to those who don't know the Lord. They're going to look at your life and they're not going to see perfection, but they're going to see something different. And maybe, just maybe, they'll ask you about that. They'll say, how is this possible, Catherine Berger? There's a tube in your chest that's feeding you. It's barely keeping you alive. And yet here I see you on Facebook rejoicing in the Lord. How? How is that possible? And that will be your testimony. So I'm... Be intentional this week. And yeah, you may fall off and slip back into grumbling next week. That's okay. Put that to death again next week. But consider what your testimony is, even to your children. Right? Are your children going to see you grumbling through trials and circumstances? Or are they going to see you rejoicing? Think about what your testimony is going to be, even to your fellow church members. Right? In every conversation you have with your fellow church members about something hard in your life or even something hard in the church, hard in the church, you have the choice. Will you grumble or will you rejoice? And of course, think about this in relation to your unsaved friends, family, and coworkers. Now, I've got one more thing I want to show you here before we wrap up our time together. And this is basically my way of Sneaking in a fourth point. <clears throat> in verse 16, just like he did earlier in verse 2, Paul points to himself as he exhorts the Philippians. Look at verse 16. He says, Hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. You got to love this. Paul the dad is talking to his children and he's saying, Go get him. Go get him and make me proud. There, there's a note of optimism in Paul's writing to the Philippians that I think is very significant in light of the grumbling story of Exodus, right? In the Exodus event, Moses 
talked to the Israelites about his impending departure, just like Paul. Paul tells the Philippians, I'm about to go. Moses takes a moment to tell the Israelites before his death that he's about to go in Deuteronomy chapter 31. Listen, listen to what he says. For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the works of your hands. Yikes. Not, not exactly the encouraging, go get him, tiger, send off speech. Now listen to Paul's words in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, <laughs> you already feel the difference? Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. You see that contrast? What's the difference there, right? Like Moses says, you've never obeyed, and I know when I die, things are only going to get worse. Paul says, hey, you've always obeyed, and I know that when I die, you're going to keep obeying. What is the difference? The difference is the promise of the new covenant. Moses had little confidence in the Israelites, and that makes sense because they didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. They had the law of God, but the law of God was written on stone. It was not written on their hearts. But Paul had great confidence in the Philippians. Why? Is it because the Philippians were like intrinsically more holy than the Israelites? No, all humans are sinners, shot through completely, total depravity, left to our own devices without the grace of God, we would all be Hitlers. And worse, so why is Paul so confident in the Philippians? Because the new covenant promise is a better promise. It's a promise that guarantees obedience. Not perfect obedience, but obedience nonetheless. Listen to Jeremiah 31. When God begins to really lay out what this covenant's going to be, he said, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. You see the contrast? The grumbling generation versus the new covenant generation. My covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, they cheated on me. They were adulterers. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. And I... This is such good news. This is such good news. It's my only hope. It's your only hope. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. What is the only difference between the grumblers of Israel and you? And if your answer is anything other than the grace of God, friend, you don't understand the gospel. 
The only difference is that God has made a better covenant with you and you didn't initiate that covenant. You didn't ask for it. You weren't out here living in these streets seeking out a new and better covenant where God's Holy Spirit would come live in you and then imprint the truth of his word on on your heart so that you could live obediently and then go be with him forever. Left to their own devices, the Philippians would have disobeyed. They would have despised. They would have disbelieved. Just like the grumblers. The only reason they didn't, the only reason that you don't is because of grace. The only, you're like, Sean, how can I rejoice through my wilderness experience? This is how. Anytime you've seen a member of this church rejoice and be glad through their wilderness experience, this is how. Not natural, supernatural. Something very important for us to remember is that the Spirit of God, which is what this promise is, right? The promise is that the Spirit of God will do these things in us. The Spirit of God always works through the Word of God. Sometimes people try to pit those two against each other, right? Scripture versus the Holy Spirit. No, the Holy Spirit always works through the Holy Word of God. And one of the ways that the Holy Spirit works to cause us to obey is by showing us examples to turn away from in scripture. We read this earlier in our service, 1 Corinthians. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. We must not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So you are here this morning, brother and sister, to be instructed to faithfulness by this negative example of the grumblers of Israel. So let the Spirit of God apply this Word of God to your heart. As you go back out into the world, do not put Christ to the test. If you do, you will be destroyed. But rather rejoice and do not grumble. Be glad so that you may shine brightly in the darkness of this fallen world. We're about to sing these lyrics together, and I hope they mean more to you after today's sermon than they might otherwise have. You have called us out of darkest night into your glorious light, that we may sing the wonders of the risen Christ. May our every breath retell the grace that broke into our strife with boundless love and deepest joy, with endless life. Let me pray, and then we'll sing. Father, thank you for sustaining us as we listen to your word. Lord, we trust the gospel promise that your Holy Spirit has worked your word into our hearts today. And we pray that we will see fruit this week by your grace and for the glory of your name. Amen.